This is a crowd podcast. We're in Illinois, and this is WLCN 96.3 FM. It's a small radio station based just outside Chicago. If you head out of the city and hit the 55 going southwest, you'll drive straight past the studio. A, a bold vision for fundraising for the college that is a part of its natural history. And so let me go back. This is today's guest. He's Dr. David Gerlach, and he's talking about the school where he teaches. It's called Lincoln College, and David's the president there. It's in a place called Lincoln, which you'll reach if you keep heading southwest past the radio studios, another hour or so outside Chicago. It's a small city, surrounded by flatness, not a hill or a mountain in sight. David's been there for seven years, and there's something special about it. A lot of black people don't, in my situations don't have the opportunity to get an education. It gave me the opportunity to chase my dreams. David's proud. The COVID pandemic had hit them hard, but they survived. But then comes ransomware, and everything comes falling down. There's an epidemic of college, university, and school closures across the U.S. and Europe. And ransomware is costing schools and universities $3.5 billion a year. Their actions affect more than just the people that they're trying to hurt. And I want to, finally, get to the bottom of the Russia question. How much does Putin know about the hacking armies of Moscow and St. Petersburg? And if he knows more than he claims, what game is he playing? It's a huge question. So I'm going to the only place I can think of where I might find the answer. And, you know, his question to me was, so do we wake the president? The White House. I'm Katie Puckrick, and this is Dot Com The Hacking, Episode 4, Hurricane. So, Russia and ransomware. Why? Let me run through a few theories with you. Alex, the guy from Ukraine whose buddy leaked the Conti chat logs, says it's because of a lack of law enforcement there. Russia and a number of other countries did not participate in the cross-the-border extradition treaties and anything like that. And Ryan, our ransomware expert, puts a sexy historical slant on it. Before the fall of the USSR, they had a number, a very large number, of communist training camps. And, he says, after the fall of the Iron Curtain... There was then a vacuum of what do we do? And for that matter, what do we do with the youth? And and so on and so forth. Well, IT and computing and networking was an obvious, well, duh. Which sounds neat. A little too neat. Are we just pointing the finger at Russia? Because who better to blame than the big bad baddies? I mean, the Russian government has found it in their interest to support this kind of ecosystem. This is Michael Daniel. We've already met him a couple of times. The guy who says ransomware should be treated as a terrorist threat. He would know. He's worked at the highest levels of American government. Michael used to work in the Office for Management and Budget, OMB. Parts of our intelligence community started spending 
tremendous amounts of money on this thing called cyber. And nobody in the White House really understood what all of this money was being requested for. And so the director of OMB at the time asked me and another guy uh, to go get, quote, smart on this cyber thing. And that was what started me down this, this path. And I've been involved in cybersecurity ever since. He worked in the White House a long time. In the Clinton administration, the Bush administration, and the Obama administration at OMB. Um, and then I finished out four and a half years as President Obama's cybersecurity advisor. Michael dealt with Russia for years, but he's also au fait with the other main state players in the cyber realm. North Korea's hack into Sony Pictures, China's ongoing theft of American trade secrets. So I'm totally stoked to be speaking with him, because this whole Russia question has been bothering me. I still very distinctly remember the Homeland Security Advisor at the time, John Brennan, and I, not long after I'd started in the position in 2012, on the phone very late at night on a Friday night, because it was always on a Friday night when these, you know, crises tended to happen. And, you know, his question to me was, so do we wake the president? And that was sort of drove home the kind of awesome responsibility of, you know, what we were dealing with. And did you ever wake the president? You know, I did not have to do that because the way that the cyber crises unfolded was less about kind of the immediacy of it, right, but sort of the learning how to deal with these events as they unfolded over time. Remember that stat that 74% of ransomware revenue goes straight into the pockets of hackers tied to Russia? That's about $400 million a year. I asked Michael about this. Is it plausible? Mm. You know, that's, I, here's what I would say about that. It's plausible. It's hard for me to have a basis to say that it's accurate or not because our full understanding of the ecosystem is not what I would want it to be. But certainly given the predominance of Russian language groups and the level of safe harbor that has been provided to them, I, I find that number to be plausible. I, I can't validate it one way or the other though. We move on. And this is where it gets really interesting. Why Russia? <laughs> so I, it is a very interesting question, and I think it's a combination of, of factors, right? Some of it is capability, meaning that you've got a workforce there present in Russia that has good technical skills that have been developed. Another factor is the, that the Russian government has encouraged it over the past couple of decades, frankly because they found it in their interest to have this, uh, this capability, both you know, in terms of causing problems for uh, Western Europe and the United States and elsewhere, but also as a bench of technical capability that they can call on to pursue their national goals. You speak about Russian technical expertise. Um, I've spoken to somebody who's talked about uh, rumors of communist training camps for hackers. Have you heard anything about that? Uh, that actually tends to be more of a North Korean thing, actually, about how they sort of identify talent and then sort of raise it up. But certainly, I think that the traditions that came out of the communist era, right, of that focus on science and engineering and technical prowess being something that was favored in Russian society, you know, that plays through into their ability to generate people that are capable and, and interested. There is a consensus on this. 
In the 70s, while I was having a blast in the American embassy in Moscow, where I lived with my family, and through the 80s, after I'd moved back to the U.S., the Soviet Union was going through some drastic changes. They'd been lagging behind the West in terms of science and technology for decades, and they'd gotten kind of tired of it. They want to modernize, so they do, by computerizing the nation. Armies of computer specialists begin to be trained up, and by the mid-'80s, it's compulsory to teach computer literacy in schools. And then, in 89, the Soviet Union crumbles, and this army of highly competent engineers, programmers, and technicians is set adrift. And decades later, the landscape hasn't changed. Younger generations of Russians have access to super-specialized educations in physics, computer science, and math, but no Silicon Valley where they can realize their talents. And what do they see when they go online, says a security expert, Sergei Golovinov, in the New York Times, that it's possible with their knowledge and skills to earn millions of dollars just like that. A certain percentage of these people decide it's worth breaking the law. And according to Michael, the Russian government has decided it's worth turning a blind eye. Oh, sure. I mean, the Russian government has found it in their interest to support this kind of ecosystem. Remember that at this point, from a geopolitical standpoint, and I think a lot of, you know, the, the people that study Russia specifically, you know, they would say things like Russia is a disruptor. And the war in Ukraine has brought that into even sharper relief. They don't have a lot invested in the global economy uh, as a result of all of the sanctions. So for them, the cost of, you know, being a disruptor um, is, is much lower. So the, there are upsides to them having this capability. And from their perspective, they don't see a whole lot of downsides. So it really actually makes kind of logical sense when you think about it from the Russian perspective. Do you think Putin's fully cognizant of the gangs operating under his roof and even in support of them? I'm sure like with many things, like he doesn't specifically know a lot of the details um, and probably actually tries to make sure that he has, again, that plausible deniability, but I'm sure that he has the overall, the overall sense of it. But as we're about to find out, Russia is certainly not the only one. You're listening to .com The Hacking. Welcome back. My name's Kareem Burnett. I'm 21 years old. I'm from the west side of Chicago, and I am a college student. I'll be entering my junior year. This is Kareem. The Austin area, which is where I'm from, it recorded the highest levels of violence in Chicago. And, you know, a lot of shootings and things like that, drug dealing or whatever, Typical. those are just typical things you kind of see in Chicago. And I've experienced the good and the bad of Chicago or whatever. So, yeah, it was... It was definitely a challenge. In a lot of ways, Austin's a normal neighborhood. Wide, dusty streets, parked cars, shops, parks, basketball courts, abandoned buildings. But it's a world away from the nice part of town, about 10 miles to the east. That's where you get the hustle and bustle of inner city Chicago, where the city stops and Lake Michigan starts, not far from the law firm where a young lawyer named Michelle Robinson was once asked to mentor a new arrival by the name of Barack. But that's not Kareem Chicago. Kareem Chicago is Austin, and Austin's woven with a different pattern, one of guns and violence. 
going up, a lot of kids, if they're looking to like make it out of Chicago or do something positive in their life, a lot of the times they try to take the, the route of like a athlete or like a musical artist or whatever. Those are like the typical things you will find a, a kid who isn't like in school or whatever trying to do in Chicago. But if they aren't on the positive things, a lot of kids do fall victims who are fortunate enough to want better in life or want to do something positive. A lot of them do typically fall to the negative stereotypes of Chicago, selling drugs, being in gangs, things of that sort. Kareem has a big family. He's one of seven siblings, and his aunts are around a lot. He's at his mom's right now, so you might be able to hear them in the background. Kareem grew up with basketball. He played it all the time and used to watch it on TV with his granddad. Growing up in that atmosphere, especially as a young kid who wasn't into those things, like a lot of kids or even a lot of friends that I had, they were into those things, so they became more comfortable. But me growing up not being into those things, it was definitely intimidating, like walking past the drug dealers or whatever, going to school or getting on the bus, you know, just hearing the stories of people falling victim to crime. And a lot of times I found myself kind of like nervous or, or scared per se, like just wondering like, dang, this could be the day like I could lose my life doing this or I could fall victim to the, the negativity around me. People are killed every day in Chicago. In 2016, the number of young black men fatally shot was nearly 50 times the national average. If you're a black kid from Chicago and a black kid from Austin, your life is gonna be blighted by gun crime. And Kareem's is no different. He had an older cousin called Darius. Darius was shot and killed at the end of 2020. He was like a brother to Kareem, and he was only 25. You know, like in Chicago, a lot of people solve small problems. They jump straight to guns. Like, we could have an argument or a disagreement, a back and forth of words, and people's first reaction would be to go, go get a gun. And it's just six months later when it happens. Last May, May 2nd, my brother, he was shot and killed. I was a week away from coming, coming home from school, coming home for some summer break. And my little brother, he was 17 at the time. It was eight days before his birthday. He was shot and killed on the same the same block that we I grew up and spent our whole lives on, that my grandparents owned a house on that block for 40 plus years. And yeah, he was killed in our uh, the neighborhood we grew up on. Kamari, that's his brother's name, was just minding his own business. Wrong place, wrong, wrong time. He was um he was in his car, he was driving or whatever, he was gonna go somewhere, and then it was an altercation that had happened before he pulled up, and then mistakenly they thought that he was involved in the incident that was happening at the moment. And yeah. That's basically how it happened. It's just life. 2021 went down as Chicago's deadliest year on record, with nearly 800 homicides. You never get used to it, says Kareem, but you learn to live with it. You have to force yourself to be used to it, force yourself not to think about it so much because, like, while you're thinking, while you're still grieving of this death or this incident, another incident is just waiting around the corner. But Kareem's got dreams. He wants a way out. I didn't hear about Lincoln College until my senior year. My uh, my high school advisor, she told me to apply for there. Like she told me that she think it would be a good opportunity. Lincoln College. It's in the city of Lincoln, somewhere on that Highway 55, about three hours outside Chicago. It's a simple building, square, red bricks. It's old. 
It's been here nearly 160 years from the time of Abraham Lincoln's Emancipation Proclamation that ended slavery to a world of pandemics and digital war. Lincoln City is small and Lincoln College is even smaller. It's only got about 600 students headed by Dr. David Gerlach. College was always an aim I had for myself. Like no matter how hard school ever got, I was like, I was gonna go to college, give me a degree, because I always wanted a better life for myself. And I always wanted a level of education and degree, whereas somebody couldn't undermine me or somebody couldn't say I wasn't qualified to do this and that, or I wasn't smart enough to do this and that, because I would feel like if I had that degree, that would solidify that. Kareem's mom and dad have always pushed the value of work and education to their seven kids. So with their support, Kareem gets a scholarship, packs up his bag, leaves Austin, and heads southwest. It was a totally different image when I got there than what I thought it was going to be. I thought Lincoln College was a predominantly white institution, a PWI, but it's actually not. It was um, it's one of like the only seven PBIs, a predominantly black institution. PWI, PBI. These are acronyms that you might not have heard of and could only exist in a country with such a fraught history of racism. To qualify as a PBI, your student body needs to be 40% black. Lincoln College is almost 50, with a lot of kids coming from Chicago. To go somewhere and be around other black people, and especially people from the same place I was, it made me 10 times more comfortable, and I was able to come out of my shell quicker versus if I was at a PWI and I would go there and it would be a, a one to 10, black to white ratio or whatever, and it would be hard finding other people that look like me or were from the same situations as me. But it's also diverse. I met my first white friends or people that I could consider friends at Lincoln College, so that definitely was like a, a, a good thing for me too. I, I was able to make friends with people who weren't necessarily part of the same race or same background as me, so I love that, having that experience. He starts studying in the autumn of 2020, and soon he's fallen in love. We had our own radio building and our own TV station that we had 24-7 access to. We had a gym, an open gym that they gave us access to every Wednesday to like play basketball or whatever. He's living on campus, going to parties, playing basketball, studying, hanging with friends. The normal stuff. The college had taken on a record-breaking number of new students that summer, and the halls are fit to burst. He's majoring in radio, TV, and new media because he wants to be a sports commentator basketball, mainly. So he's spending more and more time in the college's state-of-the-art radio studios. And soon, the world of media envelops him. He starts his own podcast called Love from the Trenches. We just basically talk to people in Chicago about, like, growing up in Chicago. We talk to different artists in Chicago or content creators in Chicago. I think we got about four episodes out here. And has shifts on the college radio station. Kareem Burnett here. Yeah, we're definitely praying for that first win. Not a good start to the season, 0-6. Soon his voices surf in the airwaves around campus and across the little town of Lincoln. Oh, we only had six team assists last game. You'll never win a game like that with that confidence. The name of the town is Lincoln. Of course, when Lincoln College plays, Everybody is tuned in to watch Lincoln College, and they were all listening to my to my voice and my friends' voices over that. So, yeah, that opportunity was the thing that just excited me the most, and, and that just made me want to do it the mo more. It becomes a home away from home. Kareem's advisor, a guy called John, becomes a mentor to him. It's like a family. Exciting, comfortable, bursting with opportunities. 
the hiss and crackle of gang violence on the west side of Chicago begin to fade. And Kareem's dreams of becoming ESPN's next big sportscaster are becoming clearer. Yes. I just love, like, the idea of expression because I've always had, like, ideas or being able to express how I feel and, like, and, and put that in, like, a, a creative form, like, podcast or whatever, and to be able to talk about basketball with some of my friends, like, on a podcast, and then we put that out to the world and we get good feedback from it or even bad feedback, just getting feedback in, in general and giving and having people actually listen and watch you and understand, like, what you're talking about. I just love that experience, being able to, to express myself. He's got the drive that anyone who's ever bellied up to a mic knows only too well. The thirst for that flashing red light. And all because of this place, a college that was named after the president who signed the Emancipation Proclamation 160 years earlier. Emancipating still. But under the surface, behind the glitzy radio studios and solid red walls, all is not well. You're watching Lincoln men's basketball on LTV. The fallout from the COVID pandemic has hit the college hard, and President Gerlach is desperately trying to get more funding, appearing on radio stations across Illinois to enthuse about the college's long history and its importance for local kids. They're getting by. But then, one day, ransomware comes to town. It's January 2022. The excitement of Christmas that had been a temporary flare of warmth in the winter has burned itself out, and Illinois is freezing. There are harsh winds, and the snow is thick. Kareem's in his second year at Lincoln, and the first semester is over. He's been at home in Chicago for the holidays and is looking forward to getting back to Lincoln. But he's about to find out that the college he's returning to is not the same one he left a few weeks earlier. Nobody knows it yet, but a parasite has been lurking in the computers, incubating in the wires. In like the first week of school, they was like we would go to class and the teachers were giving us um a piece of paper to write our name on for attendance. You know, usually the teachers log attendance into their laptops or whatever. So like what's going on? Everybody like the Wi-Fi's down, the Wi-Fi's down. So I went into my room to like play the game or whatever. Me and my friends, we was gonna get on 2K, NBA 2K, and the Wi-Fi was down. Like we couldn't get on. And the Wi-Fi, it was just it was just down. We like, what the heck? What is going on? So the next day, like the Wi-Fi was working. So we like, oh, the Wi-Fi back, the Wi-Fi back. And then it went out again in like a few hours. And I'm like, what the heck? No Wi-Fi is bad enough. But then Kareem's phone breaks. It was like living in like the stone age. Like I, my, I didn't have a phone. I didn't have any Wi-Fi. I was just sitting in my room, super bored. I'm like, oh, I can't live like this. And like, yeah, it was definitely, it was definitely frustrating. Kareem's teachers start asking them to hand in assignments by paper. With no phone and no internet, there's no video games with his buddies, no releasing podcasts, and the bitter January air and short days makes going outside and shooting some hoops unthinkable. He's going for hours at a time, not talking to his family, his friends, his girlfriend. Literally, like, sometimes I would just be in my room bored. Like, God, I, I realize how reliant I am on technology. I'm like, it's like I don't even exist at this point. Soon, though, the whispers start. It's not just about the Wi-Fi, they're saying. We've been hacked, and not just any old hack. It's ransomware. Unsurprisingly, Kareem doesn't seem to know the details. Rent, um... 
can you go into detail more about me, like what is ransomware, so I can just be to just yeah. Hackers ransom. The whispers are getting stronger. And those were really like the only rumors and news being spread around, but we had no idea about the school's financial situation or about us being close to close. We had no idea about that at all. It was just like a, a day like any regular day or whatever, and then um, 10 in the morning, everybody gets a message on Canvas saying there's a mandatory school meeting for everyone in the gym. So this is the first time that ever happened where it was a mandatory school meeting. I'm like, yeah, yeah, well, we, we wondering like what the meeting's about. Everybody like, what's the meeting? What's the meeting about? What's the meeting about? So we sitting there and then that's when y'all hear these rumors, people going around talking about the school closing, the school might be closing. So at first everybody's in denial. We're like, nah, it's just rumors. This meeting could be about anything. It's just rumors, it's just rumors. But it's not. Kareem and his friends have had a few weeks of dodgy Wi-Fi. Annoying, sure, rip your hair off boring, and definitely lonely at times, but not a death sentence. But behind the scenes, it's a different story. In Lincoln College's offices, it's been extremely stressful. No Wi-Fi means no fundraising, no recruitment of staff, no enrollment of new students, and all of that means no money. Lincoln ends up paying $100,000 to the hackers as a last-ditch attempt to get their data back. But the stuff they do get back is incomplete and messy. By the time they manage to recover it all, it's too late. They're not going to have enough students starting in the fall, almost half the normal amount. It's not enough. Our top story tonight, a college that's been open for 150 years. It's closing its doors. Another Confused, sad, and heartbroken. Those are just a few emotions students say. They're it was real. a total shock. I was like confused. I'm like derailed the whole thing. And I'm just like, wow, I don't even like I was in, I was shell shocked. I'm like, what am I going to do now? Like this just put a wrench in all my plans. I was just doing so good. I was confused as to what I was going to do. And like some people were asking on the same day that we heard the news, oh, what school are you going to go to? I'm like, bro, how am I supposed to know that? We just found out our school was closing. Like, and it's not long before the realization starts to sink in. Am I going to have to take out a crazy amount of student loans? Am I going to be, you know, accepted to another school? Am I going to be given the same opportunities at another school? So that's the word I can use the most to describe it. Very confusing, very confusing. The staff are also in shock. Now more than 500 students have to find a new school and more than 150 employees will be without a job at the end of May. Kareem's favorite teacher, his advisor, his mentor, cannot believe it. He was speechless. Like, I know he even cried at one point because he was like, this was like his life's work, his career work. Everything he had built was at this school. And I remember just feeling so bad for my advisor. I'm like, dang, can you imagine? It's only March when Gerlach makes the announcement. Kareem's got another two months of the semester left, but things have descended into chaos. Left is right and up is down. I'll never forget the next day, like, there was a, a funny phrase everybody kept using, like, um, people were, like, partying in our school dorm hallways. I know some kids were, like, drinking alcohol or whatever. And I'm like, what y'all doing there? Everybody kept saying, what they gonna do, kick us out? What they gonna do, kick us out? The school closed anyway. I'm like, oh, y'all crazy, bro. Y'all, like, it was like the world was ending. I'm like, this is crazy. Like, it was just a super crazy scenario. Like, and while all this is going on, all this chaos and confusion, we still had to go to class the next day. The college isn't going down without a fight, though. They leap into action. 
A call is put out for donations. Someone calculates they need $50 million. That'll save us. So as much as it pains me that we may likely have to close, I still am holding out hope. Administrators say the college will permanently close on May 13th unless they receive a large financial gift. Kareem's advisor, John, recruits his media students to make some campaign videos. Save Lincoln College is the hashtag, and they interview students about how Lincoln has changed their lives. You know, I'm the kids' life is gonna go downhill just because they don't got nowhere to go. It's weird. It's just weird. I just never thought Lincoln would close. Kareem does a particularly moving one. I got a call from my aunt. Like, she told me my little brother had been shot. The college's emblem is a purple lynx, and the students end each video with... And I bleed purple. I bleed purple. The effort ramps up. The Facebook group Save Lincoln College gets 3,000 members. President Gerlach tweets Elon Musk and Jeff Bezos' rich ex-wife Mackenzie Scott and does interviews, begging people to take notice. It was a little bit of hope, but in the back of my mind, I kind of knew, like, the task was too tall. Like, I knew, like, in the back of my I didn't want to, like, say nothing or whatever, but I kind of knew, like, we stood no chance of, of doing it or whatever. I was going to put my best foot forward. That's why I did the interview to try to build some type of funding or whatever, but I kind of knew, like, it was over with when they told us the amount of money our school was owed or whatever or the amount of money we would need to stay open. I'm like, yeah, I don't think it's going to happen. And Kareem's right. The initial surge of effort and momentum garnered through shock and fear has lasted a few weeks, but it's not enough. Having survived 160 years of threats from the physical world, it's the digital world that'll deal the final death blow. By the end of March, the fight's over. And on May 13th, just five months after the attack, Lincoln College's radio station goes quiet. They switch off the lights and they close the doors. And amid all the grief and sadness, there's a gaping hole. For all the interviews that he'll do over the upcoming months, the principal doesn't give too much away. There are a lot of questions that go unanswered. How did they hack in? When, even? What date? And most glaringly absent of all, the question of who? Kareem. I think he said it was like some cyber terrorists from Iran or whatever. I think that's that's what he said. We were hacked by cyber terrorists in Iran. I believe that's what he said. Not Russia. Iran. Russian ransomware. It's got a tasty roll-off-the-tongue alliteration. Goodness knows I've said it enough times. Russia are the ransomware guys. Places like China, North Korea, and Iran, they hack, sure, and reports are starting to trickle through of Chinese hackers cozying up with Russian gangs. But even if that's true, the core of the operation, the niche, complex ecosystem that is ransomware, that's Russia. The biggest and the baddest of them all, period. But what if I'm wrong? I'm back with Michael. Obama's guy. We really face two very, very different adversaries. And we have multiple adversaries in cyberspace, but two of them in particular at the very high end are very, very different from each other. And one is Russia and the other is China. My successor in the White House position, Rob Joyce, who's now the director of the Cybersecurity Center up at NSA, you know, he had a great line where he said, you know, Russia is a hurricane, but China is climate change. 
What China wants to do is fundamentally alter the rules of the game of the international order to be more beneficial to China. And they want to have more influence、um, abroad. They want to take a dominant position.、Um, and they use their cyber capabilities to support their efforts to become globally dominant. And so, for all of the focus that we have on Russia, we also cannot take our eye off of China and what it is doing. That's really interesting. So, with all of this digital spy versus spy jiggery pokery, perhaps going on, are we in a new Cold War? Is the post Cold War period over? So, I think the the period in which there was the sort of unipolar moment, if you will, that sort of emerged in the '90s after the collapse of、um, the Soviet Union. That has clearly changed, right? And we're now in an era where you've got、uh, near peer or even peer competitor. I, I think we should stop using the term near peer. I think peer competitor in the form of China. You know the way that Russia has trying、uh, to manage its interests and cause you know disruption. Clearly, there's it's a much more conflictual era. And we are undoubtedly living through a much more conflicted era. Ransomware gangs are thriving in Moscow and beyond, making unfathomable amounts of money. And by the sounds of it, Putin isn't doing much to stop them. The arrest of our evil earlier this year was a one-off. But I have a question: This ransomware war between Russia and the West, and the physical war that's being fought in Kiev, are turning the Kremlin and its people not just into political and economic pariahs, but social ones too. Is that fair? Are we in the West slipping back into the old Cold War narrative? Russia's bad and everything that it does—a kind of Russophobia, even. To my mind, when you start saying Russophobic, you're you're starting to say, well, everything associated with Russia is sort of inherently bad, and that is clearly not true. And the Russian government currently has. Policies in place and people that are dangerous to the stability of the world. They have chosen, for example, to try to impose their will on、um, on Ukraine、uh, through military means. They have allowed their cyber criminals to、um, carry out ransomware attacks and extort others, and that's clearly you know behavior that is really not something that we want to that we want to tolerate. But all of that's a choice. All of those are policy choices, and there's nothing sort of inherent in the Russian culture or people or you know even polity that you know sort of you know requires them to act this way. And if the most horrifying cases throughout history have shown us anything, from Nazi Germany to Brexit to Roe v. Wade being overturned, it's that the government ain't the country. Four million Russians left their home country in the first three months of the Ukraine war. It's a brain drain, the true impact of which won't be felt for years, even decades to come. So, if it's not Russia versus the West, maybe it's a different battle being fought on the macro level. On the one side, countries who flourished since the end of the Cold War and whose citizens saw real benefits after the world opened up in 1990, and on the other, those who haven't. And we're the pawns on the ground, being used, moved, manipulated, in the hope that someone will surrender. So, away from the White House and back up to Illinois, 
Kareem's already got his transfer through for next year. He's heading off to Eureka College, about an hour north of Lincoln. It's going to be very different. It's a PWI, a predominantly white institution. Being able to be around a lot of black people, because I'm a very proud black man. I love black people. I love being around black people and just not having the opportunity to interact with my people. Uh, yeah, I say that's the biggest loss. But Kareem's one of the lucky ones. Lots of his friends aren't continuing their studies, either because they can't afford the fees at Eureka or their grades, which were good enough for Lincoln, but don't cut the mustard anywhere else. No one will take them. And I think some of my friends, it just some people I know, it just killed their confidence to even want to go back and finish school. And all we know about the people who did this? Iranian hackers, apparently. A quick Google tells me Iran is getting big on the ransomware stage. And though they're not anywhere near the capability of gangs like Conti, our evil, Lockbit 2.0, they're making some noise. So, victim to perpetrator. What's Kareem's take on who did this? I would say that, yeah, I know they're angry, and in their mind, they probably have reasons for why they're doing this. This cyber attack, it might be the money, or, you know, I'm just not going to even just come out and straight and say these people are bad people because I don't know these people's stories. I don't know their representation, how they view the U.S. or whatever, but I'm just going to say, like, their actions affect more than just the people that they're trying to hurt. Like I said, like, they never think about the, the individual. They just think about it as the whole, because I know it's a, it's a phrase that's saying hurt people hurt people so i know they're probably hurt emotionally physically or whatever but i just that would think be the thing i would say the most that your actions have effect on more people than you know in the few months since lincoln closed kareem's been looking at photos of those amazing two years he spent there and wondering what's ahead a lot of black people don't in my situations don't have the opportunity to get an education. It gave me the opportunity to get an affordable education. And then for the most part, it just gave me the opportunity to chase my dreams. So ever since I was a kid growing up, just watching sports with my granddad in his basement or whatever, I always wanted to talk about sports on a professional level. And Lincoln College gave me the opportunity to do it at an uh, amateur semi-professional level to talk about sports and get my voice heard. And a lot of black people in America aren't given the opportunity to get their voice heard. So never ever forget Lincoln College in my life and what it stood for me. How can a college, a college that is fundamental to young people's lives, ambitions, futures, be allowed to close? That in itself I find shocking enough. But more than that, it had to close because of what Michael says is an act of terrorism. But Kareem is just one in thousands. Here are some facts. The education and research sector is targeted more than any other by ransomware gangs. 31% of American businesses were forced to shut last year after being ransomwared. And terrifyingly, Inc. Magazine estimates that 75% of small to medium-sized businesses would have to close if hit. It's almost impossible to grasp. Stats are crucial, but stats can numb. It's the facts of the everyday, the abandoned holiday plans, the unregistered newborns, the frantic Fridays, the empty radio studios. Those are the details that hit home, the human impact of this cyber war. And where it's all headed, nobody knows. A few years back, I was invited to Moscow to speak about the future of digital media. The first time I'd been back since I'd lived there as a kid. When I told them I thought that 
privacy was going to be the biggest commodity of the future. The Russians' eyes glazed over, and I knew then they were sitting ducks for hackers. After talking to the victims and experts for this series, Michael, Kareem, Katie, Cahill, I know more than ever that we're sleepwalking into our own annihilation. This is a brave new world. The rules as yet unwritten, but it's time to wake up. Dotcom is a crowd network original and is presented by me, Katie Puckrick. It's written and produced by Anna Stauffenberg and is edited by Crawford Blair. The music we use is from our partners BMG Production Music. If you want to hear the full, mind-twisting interview with Michael Daniel about working in the White House and the cyber threat from China, that will be available soon for subscribers to the Crowd Stories channel. Subscribers can also access ad-free episodes of the back catalog of .com and all of Crowd's history and documentary podcasts. All you need to do is search Crowd Stories and Apple Podcasts and hit the subscribe button. Thanks for listening. Crowd Network, a place where you belong.